I am filling in for your teacher, Dennis. And Dennis, I don't think he's going to be here today. He called two weeks ago and asked if I could take today. Uh, He and his bride are up in Pennsylvania. And I think on their way home, he thought they might be home today. Um, But if not, we'll pray that he has a safe journey back. So let's bow our heads and let's uh, join our hearts in, in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for uh, the beautiful skies and for the, uh, the seasons that you bring to us. And they are a joy, O oh Lord, to uh, again experience and be aware of how you are so constant in our lives, in season and out. And uh, all that is needful for us, you have provided for us. We thank you, O oh Lord, for uh, this gathering. We pray for those in our families that are ill and are suffering those that are in the hospital and those that uh, are uh, perhaps, as in Ashley's case, her mom's ill. We pray that she gets better. We pray for Dennis and his wife and family as they return from Pennsylvania. And Father, be our guide and our teacher this morning, and in all things be glorified in our thoughts and our words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you uh, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 22? Acts chapter 22, and uh, since Dennis is doing a study on the Gospel of Luke, I thought, and he asked me not to to do the Gospel of Luke, and I said, that's great. I thought I would, however, do um, the other book written by Luke, which is uh, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles, but I think a better uh, term is the Acts of the Holy Spirit, written by Luke as well. And I want to look at the 22nd chapter, and specifically the verses, or basically three verses this morning, verses 14 through 16 will be the core of what I want to talk about. Uh, This this section is Paul's um, articulation of his conversion. And those of you that know your Bible know that this is actually recorded in six places in the Bible. Three in Acts and three in the Epistles. And if you're taking notes, just specifically, Acts chapter 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26 will deal with with, uh, Luke's account of of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Um, And then also in Galatians chapter 1, in Philippians, and uh, then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, you'll find Paul speaking in his Epistles very briefly on this encounter on the road to Damascus. And we all know the story. I won't, I won't dwell greatly on this story, except to highlight certain aspects of it. Um, it's, a, it's a marvelous story of how God monergistically, great word, right? Monergistically, one, one effort, the effort of our salvation, specifically with regard to redemption, Justification is God's monergistic operation. God initiates, God operates, God brings about what is God's will. And we see it in our lives, but we certainly see it throughout Scripture and certainly in Paul's conversion. Um, If you will, let's... um, I, I want to look specifically at Ananias here. And you'll see his name in verse 12 of Acts chapter 22, Ananias. 
And specifically what I would like to look at is Ananias's role in Paul's conversion. And glean from his role, what does that tell us in terms of a lesson as to what we could be and perhaps should be and what we have found in our life for the Ananiases in our lives. Okay? So keeping your finger there, let's then turn right to Romans chapter 10. And I'm going to, in context of Ananias's role, have us read verse 14 and following of Romans chapter 10, another very well-known passage that speaks about the role of the preacher. How are they going to call upon Christ unless God sends a preacher? Lovely passage, beginning verse 14. Paul writes and says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The euanglisia in Greek, the, the good news. And so if I may, just starting out, say that Ananias' role in our text today, in Acts chapter 22, is that he is the preacher. He is the articulator or the mouthpiece through which God is going to speak to Saul and God ordains Ananias for this purpose as he has ordained or elected, is a better word, he has elected Paul for what Paul is to do. It's all connected in God's economy and his sovereignty. He is the preacher. And, and, and so really the point I want to make, this is, we're going to come back to this at the end of our, our study this morning, is we all need an Ananias in our life. And perhaps you can look back and say that this person or these persons played that role years ago in my life. Or maybe just last week. And so too, God has put us on this earth in his economy for us to play that role in other people's lives. Be the Ananias. And what we're going to see Ananias do and what he says, I think are our marching orders. Now Ananias is found not to be just kind of a kind of a warning to you. You'll find three references to Ananias all in the book of Acts. And there's only one reference that's, that we're looking at here. There's two other guys that, that are called Ananias, so don't be confused by him, by, by that, that person. For example, in Acts chapter 5, the very famous story of Ananias and Sapphira, right? And he's living in Jerusalem, and he and his wife have property. They sell the property, and they uh, withhold the money from the church, from, from Peter. And uh, Peter really gets on their case and says, you've been lying not simply to us, you've been lying to the Holy Spirit, and they both die. So we can basically eliminate this Ananias from chapter, chapter 5 of Acts. The very next chapter, chapter 23, we find in Acts 23, verses 1 and 2, another Ananias, who is the high priest in Jerusalem, and that's a different one. And if you know that particular story, he's a brutal man. He's a nasty man. He's a, he's a he's a, slings around a lot of insults on Paul and has Paul beaten. 
And that's a different Ananias as well. The Ananias we encounter both in chapter 9, which we're going to look at in just a minute, and in chapter 22, is a believer, his Jewish background, he was raised Jewish, he came through the Holy Spirit to become convinced that Jesus Christ was and is who he says he is, that he's the forgiver of sins, he is the Lamb of God who took away Ananias' sins and ours. And he became a believer and he was a devout man. And the text says he was devoted observer to the law and highly respected by all the people living there in verse 12. So he's a believer. So now let's, let's go back to the text. And, and as we look at the first 11 verses of chapter 22, let me read it and just as a preface, remind us what's going on here. Notice the first person uh, here. This is in the in Acts chapter nine. Luke is writing, and he uses third person, so he's he's recording a history. In this account, it's in first person, so this is the account that Paul is telling that Luke is recording. So this is his conversion in in Paul's own words, and it's lovely. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, and here he's going to lay out who he is. They know who he is. They're they're out to basically arrest him and kill him because they're very angry because, because this is the end of the third missionary journey. And Paul is a devout believer in Jesus Christ. And they are incensed, like, how can you be a Jew and follow Christ? We're going to bring you on charges. And, and that's all the, what they're endeavoring to do during this, this, this interrogation. But, but Paul goes on and he says, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for the God as all of you are to this day, I persecuted this way to the death. Now, the term the way, when it's capitalized, as we all know, is, is reference to the church. It was, an early, it was an early title to the church. So he says, he's, he's admitting it. He's, he's saying, I persecuted Christians to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those who also were there and to bring them into bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. He's admitting this. And then in verse 6 he goes on, he says, while I'm drawing near to Damascus, around noon he sees a great light. This light, as you, as you study it here and elsewhere, This light is so bright, it's as if it outshines the midday sun. And the light speaks to him. I fall to the ground. I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, and here it is. The voice inside the light identifies who he is. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Just one side note here is 
how lovely it is that Christ is saying, though he's not persecuting Christ per se, he's persecuting the followers of Christ, disciples. And those followers of Christ, you and I are so identified with Christ by being one with him that when you persecute one of his sheep, Jesus said, you're persecuting me. I, I just think of the persecution going on in the world today in Afghanistan. I read about it today. Great persecution of Christians in Afghanistan. Should be no surprise to us. And Christ is in heaven saying that if you persecute one of these lambs, you're persecuting me. And he takes it very personally. And he's relating this to, to Saul. Then he goes on, he continues in this, and he says the people around him see the light, but they don't hear the voice. And then he says, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. The word appointed there is a Greek word that's translated elected or chosen. And you'll find in verse 14, the same Greek word is used again in reference to Saul on how God has chosen him. And the point I'm making is, is, is the Holy Spirit is saying that you're going to meet a man who has been chosen there to give you a message. <laughs> and he's going to give you a message. He hasn't yet said it, but in that message, he's going to say that you have been chosen for a responsibility to go on in life and to take the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles and to the far ends of the world. As you read it, you're going to see that. I'm going to look just briefly at Acts chapter 9, and it's another account of this story, and, and, and also anecdotally notice that it's in the third person. This is Luke through the Holy Spirit, giving historical account. It's not first person, it's third person. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Notice, not only is a righteous man and a holy man, which we learned later, a God-fearing man, but he is a disciple of Christ. Luke, through the Holy Spirit, is telling us that. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street that is called Straight and to the house of Judas, and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on me so that he might regain his sight. And then Ananias, on hearing this, it's almost, I would do this. And Ananias, I mean, I would do it. He's kind of saying, Lord, can I remind you? Not like the Lord needs to be reminded. But he's reminding the Lord. He says, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done for your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all those who call upon your name. Or in other words, this guy's a rascal, Lord, just reminding you. And you want me to go to his house? <laughs> and he kind of lays it out there. And then the Lord simply says to him, go. 
For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. He's a chosen instrument. I came to believe in the doctrine of election not because John Calvin taught it. I believed in it because the Bible is so clear on the doctrine of election. There's nowhere in Scripture in the 66 books of the Bible that you cannot see the doctrine and is vividly given out. Notice God is calling a man who's a persecutor of the church. Saul hated Christians. He lived a fair amount of his life out to bind them and track them down and, and make life miserable for them and to kill them. And this is one of the men that God has called into a great mission. Someone once said that God doesn't call the sanctified, he sanctifies the called. He doesn't call the, the competent, he makes competent those that are called. It's God's monergistic work. Here God is calling this man, this Saul, who's been so fiercely opposing to the early church for a responsibility and for a great, great uh, work. And Ananias, as a disciple and as a godly man, upon simply hearing God say that, he obeys. I mean, he doesn't say anymore. And he basically, it says in verse 17, he departs and he enters into the house. And laying his hands on him, he says, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and, and Paul's sight is, re, is restored. And it's not because of anything in Ananias. It's the Holy Spirit working through him that restores his sight. What's lovely here is notice what he calls Saul at this point, because all he's ever heard, he's never met Saul before, but he's encountering Saul on the testimony of what Christ has told him about Saul, that he's chosen. And he says to him, Brother Saul, Greek is Adelphos in Greek. Adelphos, which means literally of the same womb. It's translated brother, but it's, but it's better in Greek because it means one who has come forth from the same womb. Now, Paul, or Saul rather, and Ananias are not literally of the same womb. They had different mothers. They grew up in different places, different fathers. But they are, in a spiritual sense, of the same womb because they've been born again. Born once of one womb, born a second time of the Holy Spirit. You're born figuratively of a second womb, of a new womb. And we are brothers and sisters to all those that are born again. And so now that dividing wall of hostility between he, Saul, who was out to persecute the way, Christians, is now destroyed through regeneration and through the Holy Spirit and being made alive in Christ. And now Ananias can not just figuratively say it, but he can say it from his heart, Brother Saul. And that's a leap of faith, and of course it is. Brother Saul, Adelphos Paul. The Lord who appeared to you uh, on the road by which you came has sent me to you that, he may, that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's look back at our text. Um, and, and now to our, our main point, beginning at verse 12 and following to verse number 16. 
And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken by all the Jews who live there. This is Paul's personal account of this. Came to me and standing by me said to me, Adelphos Paul, brother Paul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and I saw him. And now here comes the the message or the sermon and it's only in two verses. It's very brief. And it has four points. And may I say these points apply, in fact, William Barclay in his commentary on this said, these points apply not simply to the commissioning or the ordination of Paul, but it really pertains to every Christian who has been born again of the Spirit. This is our material. This message is, is, is geared in for us, the four points. And before I get to the four points, there's simply two words I want to look at. Because it's going to identify the source from the message, and that's very important, always very important. And then it's going to identify uh, the causation of that message. Verse 14, it says, The God of our fathers has appointed you. Right? The source of the message is the God of our fathers. And notice, again, it's, 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 it's possessive, the God of our fathers. Not, he's not saying, because he's a Jew, now become a Christian, and he's not saying the God of my fathers. He could say that. Or he could say the God of your fathers, but he's, he's, he's combining together. He says the God of our fathers together because we're brothers. And he's identifying that this God is the same God that spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not a different God. The God of Christianity is the very same God. And that's, we know this very easily. This is common sense. But back in that day, it was like, are you preaching a different God? And he's saying, it's not a different God. It's the God of our fathers. Look all the way back in Exodus chapter 3, that story of the burning bush. And this phrase, commentators will spend a fair amount of time talking about this phrase, the God of our fathers. And and the point that they will make is it's such an Old Testament phrase. And you'll find it throughout Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And in the third chapter of Exodus, where you find the angel of the Lord appearing in the flame of fire. And, and, And even before we go on, may I boldly say that that voice that comes from the burning bush that's not consumed is the very voice that is speaking to to Saul on the road to Damascus. It's Jesus. Back in Exodus 3, it's the pre-incarnate second son of the Holy Trinity speaking through that voice, and it's identified as that. And then when Moses encounters that and is speaking to him and telling him his commission, he's saying, identify yourself to me, And in verse 6 it says, and here's the phrase, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And all Ananias through the Holy Spirit is telling Paul, who would have known this passage, he probably had it memorized, is the very God that spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. Spoke to you. He identified himself as Jesus, but he spoke to you. That's the origin of the message. And then the second part is, he, what has he done for you? 
He has appointed you. And here's that Greek word again. And, and translating the Greek word, it literally means he has picked by hand you. You're hand-picked. Without putting any sense that anyone hand-picked is deserving of that. Or it's absolutely the opposite. You, if you're born again of the Spirit, you're hand-picked by God. Chosen before the foundation of the world. Go with me, of course, to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. My Arminian friends have such a problem with this. <laughs> My years as a Methodist, many years ago, I remember teaching a Bible study on Ephesians, and I think that's what did it for me. And I remember the... Uh, the convoluted arguments against believing what it actually says, put out by my Arminian friends. Text is very clear, Ephesians 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Couldn't be any clearer than that. Chosen in him, handpicked by him. When? Yesterday? Before the foundation of the world. For what purpose? That we would be holy and blameless. Chosen ones, are you living holy and blameless lives? Are you endeavoring to do that? Hmm. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. God said to Jeremiah in the fourth verse of the first chapter, he said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. But the God of our father has appointed you and called you to do this, these four things. That's the message that Ananias is giving to Saul right as his vision is restored by the Holy Spirit. God of our Father has appointed you. Now here's the four things that he, he's going to impress upon him. First thing is to know thy will. Saul, God has ordained you, he has elected you, that you might know his will. You might ask your kids someday, do you know God's will? That's a, that's, a, that's a fun time over dinner. <laughs> Son, do you know God's will for you? I'd ask your brother, your sister, you might ask people in your life. I mean, that's not a bad question to ask people. And it's not an impertinent question. It's really at the heart of who we are. Do you know <clears throat> God's will? I remember years ago when I was in seminary, I went to SMU in Dallas back in the 70s, a long time ago, and there was a guy in the church I was on staff at a Methodist church on the east side of Dallas. And he was a hot, he was a leader in the church, and I'll never forget. We were in the, it's like Monday morning after didn't have class, and we were sitting around talking, and a gentleman was bemoaning the fact that he was searching to find the will of God in his life. 
He was a leader in the church. He said, if I just knew God's will, and I must confess to you, I wasn't smart enough or learned enough as a seminary student to answer that question. It's not a hard question, and it's something that every Christian ought to know. In fact, Barclay would say, since this letter is applied, not a letter, if this small little sermon, four points, is applied to us as well as Paul, it's God's will that we know his will. And may I ask just peripherally, did Paul or Saul, before he became Paul, did Saul know God's will? And may I answer, say, he knew part of it, but he didn't know all of it. Go with me to Philippians chapter 3. And I'm indebted here to a commentator named John Gill. I think Gill's a, a good commentator. And he, essentially he says that Saul knew the will of command, but he didn't know the will of redemption. And another way of saying that is Saul was seeped in his understanding and his knowledge of the Old Testament because he was a Pharisee. He had studied under Gamaliel. He had taught it and he had, he had, he had, he had, he had revered it and he had obeyed the, the outward ceremonies and the, and the sacrifices that it demanded upon his life. And that was one reason why he was so incensed against Christians who spoke about the grace of God. And about a Messiah that had come. He didn't understand the redemptive aspects of it, but he understood the obligation that it imposed upon himself, what Gill would call the will of command. Hebrews chapter 10 summates it, and our men's Bible study is studying Hebrews. We haven't gotten to 10 yet, but the first few verses of Hebrews 10, just listen to what the writer, the author through the Holy Spirit is saying because he's describing the will of obligation, the God's will of obligation or of command versus God's will and obligation of redemption. And there's a big difference. It's the difference between Old Testament and New Testament. <clears throat> difference between uh, responsibility and obligation, being unable to fulfill it, and then being done in Christ upon the cross through the gospel. Verse 1, Hebrews 10, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of those realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. And he's continuing, he's saying that what the law was in that economy, in the old covenant, it was a shadow. We use that term all the time because it's a, it's, a, it's a biblical term. See a shadow of a tree, see a shadow of a building. You, you, it, it represents, but it's not the real thing. It's, it's just a shadow of, of something that really exists. And he says that the law, the tabernacle, the ordinances are a shadow of something that is eternal. And what is eternal is Jesus Christ. And so Paul, who knows the shadow, He's been obeying the shadow and he's made that all it is is a law of command in his life. Do this and do that and do this and do that. And it's a treadmill for which there's never an end and he can never satisfy the the law's demands upon himself. And he's frustrated as any man is because he's not yet found the will of redemption. 
And so may I suggest to you that when Ananias is told by the Holy Spirit to tell Paul that what he's been set apart to know is to know the will of redemption. You want to know what the will of redemption is? Well, I can think of no better passage than this. Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do do the will of him who sent me. And my my own will, uh, and, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, the redemptive will of my Father. That everyone who looks upon the Son and believes on him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the will of redemption that Saul is set apart to learn and to love and to preach the rest of his life. John Gill writes and says that you should know his will concerns the salvation of men by Jesus Christ, which is none other than the gospel of which the apostle was entirely ignorant. (laughs) He didn't know it but he's been set aside to know it. The second thing that he is to know is the righteous, the righteous one, the righteous one. And notice, again, the definitive article. You have to always look at articles when you're looking uh, in Greek. It's not to to see a righteous one because he'd be looking forever to find a righteous man. (laughs) It'd be like Diogenes, But to see the righteous one and the righteous one is again an Old Testament title. And it's always pointing to Christ, to see the righteous one. And just to remind you, all kinds of places we would go, but perhaps no better place that you'll find this title is in Isaiah 53. (coughs) And as we go through all of Isaiah 53, it's just lovely. It's speaking of Jesus Christ. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Verse 4. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He, Christ, was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed, and all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one his own way. And I love this. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the sins of all of us. If you want to talk about the imputation of our sins laid upon Christ, predicted in the Old Testament. Verse 10, and it was the will of God, may I say, the redemptive will of God. And let me pause there because Paul would have known this passage. He had to have known this passage. But you can read this passage all your life unless you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll never get it. My last three years on active duty as as an army chaplain, I was at Fort Dix, New Jersey, 2007 to 2010. We had a rabbi by the name of, um, I won't give you his name, but he was on staff he was a colonel, and we would get in arguments about this particular passage. Nice chaplainly arguments, but, <laughs> but I kept saying, Ira, Ira, can you see who it's talking about? The righteous one, who is the righteous one? And he refused. He had scales on his eyes, multiple conversations. As the Jewish rabbi, and he, all he could see it was, was it was talking about a hypothetical spatial servant of God, suffering servant of God. And who would that be? Ira. 
Who could it possibly be? And he, out of opposition, that was really incredible, refused to see Jesus in the passage. Notice verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. You can put parenthetically that it was the redemptive will of the Lord to crush him. What happened on the cross was no accident. It was the redemptive will of God formed before the foundation of the world, a deal cut between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and the divine council. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will, there it is, the redemptive will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied of his knowledge shall, and here's the word, the the righteous one, my servant. There's the title. Whenever you see the righteous one, my servant, may I suggest it's probably Jesus Christ. It is here. He is the servant of God. Notice what he does. He makes many to be accounted righteous. He makes them righteous. His righteousness is accounted. We can go right into Romans 8 here. It's accounted righteous. It's imputed to their account. That's, 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 a, that's a financial in, in a term. Term used in the economy. It's accounted. His righteousness is accounted to their account. It's an alien righteousness that's been put to them. And he's making them. And so anyway, this is the lovely reference that we again see in our text on this term to see the righteous one, that you might see Jesus Christ and know his redemptive will. Third thing, back again in, in, in Acts chapter 22, the third thing, to hear a voice from his mouth. Now, Paul already heard the voice from his mouth. He heard it. He's blind, but he heard it. And he responded beautifully. He says, Lord, Speak to me. Lord, what do you have to say to me? And then, who are you? And then the Lord identified himself as, I am Jesus who you're crucifying. So he's heard the voice of Christ. But may I suggest this is is talking about the need in all of us to be able to discern between the word of man and the word of God. And that comes through the Holy Spirit. There's There's a lot of voices in today's world and it's, it's the difference between being able to discern what is true and what is false. What is coming from the true source of the light, the angel of light, or whether it's, whether it's a false angel of light. There's a lot of stuff being preached on television and in pulpits today that is absolutely contrary to the word of God. And that we may have discernment on understanding that. Then fourthly and lastly, for you to... Uh, for you will be a witness for him, Christ, to everyone of whom you have, of what you have seen and heard, that you will be a witness for Jesus Christ to everyone. Notice, he's saying that your witness is not going to be simply to one group of people. We're not sent in this world just to talk to a certain group of people, a certain slice of the demographic. But the gospel is so far-reaching, that everyone is a recipient of the preaching of the gospel. You'd be a witness. And it's an interesting word. The word witness is actually the word from which we get martyr. I know you know that. Which gives a reflection that 
our lives and how we live our lives with the struggles we have in life, the disappointments, the sorrows, the hurt, the setbacks, all of that forms together to form a witness of how I've lived my life. Am I living it authentic, authentically? And in a way that glorifies God, not simply when I get the promotions and I have good health and he showers blessings on me, or am I showing him even in my frailty and in my brokenness and my setbacks that that becomes perhaps even a more vivid witness? Somebody once in my life said, at an early age, it was kind of an Ananias in my life, Incidentally, I've had a number of Ananiases in my life by God's grace. But an uh, individual said, Wayne, he said, you're going, to be, you're going to be a witness for Christ. The question will be, are you going to be a good one or are you going to be a bad one? Your life will be a witness. Trust me. Will you be a faithful witness or will you be an embarrassing witness? And isn't that true? Yeah, I, I knew a lawyer once who was talking, he was a defense, actually went to college with him and became a big defense attorney out in New Mexico. And he always was talking about how important it was for witnesses to take a stand. He did a lot of murder cases. Still does. And how the, the, the testimony of a singular witness can make all the difference versus one who gets up and is, is fudgy is not confident, has backtracked, and his testimony is not exactly, you don't have confidence in it. That's the same way for our witness on Jesus Christ, is, is, is if we hedge our bets and we're saying, well, I don't really know, or I'm not well-schooled, and I, we, we draw back, it's not as good of a witness as God would have from us. Just be confident. Notice what he says. He says, of what you have heard and what you have seen. You will be witnesses to everyone of what you have heard and what you have seen. And may we be that. May we, uh, maybe, may I just, in two minutes, I have to usher. <laughs> um, just close with, with two thoughts. One is, is that perhaps reflect on the Ananiases in your life. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Uh, maybe it was a, a wonderful pastor. I sure had mine. And they came from places I, I would never have known. And they were those men and women who came to me in life and told me something that was of the Lord that I needed to hear. And by God's grace, he enabled me to understand it. And then may I close on saying that there's somebody in your life to whom you can be an Ananias. In fact, I think that's everywhere. It's a grandchild. Parents aren't raising that child up in the Lord. Breaks your heart. Kid's not going to be happy with uh, you telling the grandchild about Jesus Christ, but so be it. <laughs> so be it. Or a neighbor kid or girl, or a mother and father that don't know the Lord yet, or an uncle or an aunt. The joy of being the Ananias. For God has set us apart, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has set us apart 
to know his will of redemption, to hear his voice, be a witness to all that he's done. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our faithful pastors. But above all, Lord, we thank you for your blessed word and that Holy Spirit that enables us to understand and have our eyes opened and the scales removed from us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.